Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 47. Security made its stand protecting the library, and all the girls who could get to it in time, for lack of anything particularly better to protect once they realized Keltham wasn't on the premises, might as well try to save Cheliax the cost of a few raised dead spells that Keltham would probably insist upon. The surviving rooms are full of response team, but they could clear out one of the two rooms of the library without much trouble. This does imply going through the library first. Asmodia was in her bedroom and got swarmed by shadows, after which some summoned monster or another gnawed off all of her legs below her mid-thighs. After Asmodia's body got retrieved, it was dumped in one corner of the library, for use in later resurrection or raise dead plus regenerate. A dead security wizard's body has been dropped beside her. Ione is unconscious and would ordinarily have been evac'd, but, library oracle, if she's got to be in some library that's not a triage center, it might as well be this library. Ione's body is occupying the largest, best-padded chair in the library, arranged with some detectable amount of respect, hands folded in her lap like a noblewoman. Things could have gone much worse without that brief warning to put up buffs and ready items. If Nidal had been able to lock down communications before they could call for reinforcements or get assassins past the wards without triggering them, it could have been much, much worse. The other girls are, reading some of them, Paxty is talking too fast to somebody who's tolerating that. One of them is examining a spiky dagger with a gem-studded hilt. Not in the manner of somebody who expects to keep it, but somebody who wants to take a good look at it before security takes it away. Keltham catches sight of Asmodia's body, and after the first horrible gruesome shock is passed, there's an odd sense of reassurance. They wouldn't treat her body like that if death was going to be more than an inconvenience to her, right? Ione's body is actually more unnerving, if you think of it that way, but maybe she's just unconscious and that's why she's carefully arranged. Or, can they not resurrect her if she's not really a worshipper of, is Ione okay? Alive. Got a vision. Warning us. Right before... Shrug. People often make full recoveries from having been contacted directly by a god. Any god but Nethys. Any god but Nethys. It could still have been some other god besides Nethys. And if it was Nethys, there is nothing Keltham can do about it except raise up science and engineering in this world to a point where it can reprogram damaged souls, even if that takes a while. Is all of this real? Is this a LARP? It doesn't make sense to hear about the one god who can destroy mind states, and then Ione just happens to get touched by that one. Nethys is supposed to not do that anymore. Can you tell if her mind's okay? Did we temporarily lose anyone else, besides Pilar? Crick messaged updates to Savar from surviving security. Mylil's temporarily dead, and obviously top priority since Mylil himself could cast Ray's dead. Elias Abarco is temporarily dead. Ion Sala did in fact shout out warning of a Nidal attack moments before it happened. There isn't anybody left who could plausibly give orders overriding Savar's. Wow. Okay. Minimal lies to Keltham stands. This is, she thinks, good for the project. On the whole, it will make Keltham seriously reconsider departing. She imagines they might now be at war with Nadal, in which case resurrections will be in short supply. 
Probably Keltham should be informed they're at war with Nadal, even if for some reason that's not happening. It allows for a lot of flex in supplies and resources for the next couple of months. Her intelligence shows up normal to the spell for checking that. We've been advised not to try to rouse her, just to heal her periodically and let her rest. None of your other girls are dead. Most Project staff are dead. Keltham thinks of something he should have remembered earlier. I have healing powers left for the day. Not sure how much. Is that helpful right now? Carissa, are you injured? I'm injured and have already had enough healing to keep me on my feet. Security calls heal, and persons still injured gather around Keltham within his channel distance, expectantly. Keltham is expecting a queue of people to be tapped. But once they explain to him that he can channel a burst of positive energy, he'll do that at everyone in his insanely huge healing radius. 4d6 hit points apiece, 30-foot radius. Wow. Keltham had no idea Fourth Circle clerics were that kind of good news. I think I can do that again, at least once and possibly more, Keltham says, still feeling a bit stunned. We could use one more, a surviving security says. The girls cannot. 4d6 is enough that the healing magic is running across the surface of their skin, patching up paper cuts. He does it again. He is beginning to understand from this, from the vision in the early judgment, that being a cleric is not entirely about, it isn't only. He doesn't have the words for it. Still have at least one repeat left, he says. Shouldn't he be doing this every evening, to people packed into appropriately dense arrays around him? Or maybe Cheliax is saturated on healing already, at most other times, if other clerics can also do this sort of thing. His brain has some brief, weird, internal fight about the obvious thought that if healing is expensive, he should do it, and if it's cheap, he shouldn't, but common sense wins there. Uh, I'll ask if anyone else needs it, says whoever's apparently appointed himself security spokesperson, and he trots outside to do that and to inform the injured that the friendly L.N. cleric is not allowed to know Cheliax is evil. So, says Meritzel, who's angling for Duchess of Nadal? She's looking at Carissa, though she doesn't quite dare to say it to Carissa with Keltham right here having no reason to think Carissa's in the running for any duchies. Sounds like a miserable job, says Carissa curtly, though of course she'd take it. She is concerned that Keltham seems to be having a religious experience about healing, that seems very much not ideal. There's no free chairs. Keltham will sit down on the ground, breathe to recover, and try to figure out everything he just did wrong. Was he supposed to use the owl's wisdom? Could he have seen this all coming if he'd used the owl's wisdom on himself at the right time? Why put Keltham right outside the forbiddance when this all happened? How is anything being predicted that finally, even by gods, quantum indexical uncertainty doesn't let ideal agents pull that kind of shit? Isn't prophecy supposed to be broken around here? Possible answer, that was an event triggered whenever Keltham went outside the forbiddance, but then... Then... Keltham really doesn't get it. Carissa sits down next to him. The other room of the library's clear and free. If you want to go rest somewhere... He. Is he in more trouble than others who'd pay more for that room if it were priced? Plausibly, yes. He is from a civilization with no world wound, and was squarely caught in the middle of things. Also, if Carissa thinks he should, maybe he should. Make sure they know where to poke the healer. Keltham pushes himself to his feet and goes with Carissa to the library's other room. 
How to do this without being pushy in a way that he won't be into, or without seeming like she needs comfort. She finds a sufficiently large chair and sinks down into it next to him, and puts her arm around him and rests her head on his shoulder. I don't understand much about what happened or what we were supposed to do, she says after a moment. But this is a pretty good outcome from the space of possible outcomes of a force of that size trying to take you. And we'll get the dead back, assuming they want to come back. Probability that Asmodia and Pilar want to come back? To life? Uh, 90%. They're young and they're wizards, and I don't know either of them to have been really excited for an afterlife or anything. To the project, maybe lower than that. Which allows for not raising them, if it seems not worth it on reflection, though Carissa is very reluctant to authorize a lie that big and that total which isn't utterly necessary. 19% on one of them not coming back is an awful lot of probability mass on. He's thinking about this the wrong way. They're in another continent where one of them might choose to stay, that's all. He just needs to see one of them come back, and he'll believe it. Did my God set me up? Not to die, obviously, but to trigger at that time. What just happened? Which parts of this could a god predict and choose? I have no idea. They shouldn't have been able to. With prophecy gone, they could have been able to see that Zon Kuthon was planning something and maybe seen that you were going to attempt to leave and that when you did, you'd die or be captured if you were intending that, especially if you were intending it in prayer. Otherwise, I don't think they could have operated even at that level of knowledge. Before prophecy, you could have things like, they thought it was better if you were outside for the attack, but not since prophecy broke. If they knew, it'd be because Zon Kuthon was amassing his forces and they could see that. Keltham is tempted at this point to poop out all this shit and tap himself with the owl's wisdom and to hell with personality integrity. Shit just got visibly really serious instead of quietly really serious. He doesn't consider the thought for very long. The time to tap himself with Owl's wisdom, if he hadn't been an idiot, was either the moment when the crisis started, or sometime before then. If it's not an emergency, you don't take mind-altering performance drugs in the kind of state that Keltham is in right now. Were the two auguries meant to indicate that this particular augury was really important? That's plausibly, that's plausibly it, if he'd cast the second augury then, and got a result of massive disaster from heading outside the Forbiddens, that would have... Maybe that was what was meant to happen, but how was Keltham supposed to know? He'd thought it was one spell to figure out what the spell was, and then the second one, when he'd had time to think of a question. Not his fault, plausibly, in a way that makes sense to blame himself for. There's no obvious actually general heuristic to update here that isn't just... Use both auguries on the first question to enter your mind. Keltham's god might not have been able to exactly predict. I got two auguries. I thought the first one was to find out what the spell was, and the second one was for when I'd had time to think of the right question. If my god thought that three-quarters the first augury wouldn't fail, but if it did fail, I would use the second one. Or if people just always get two auguries for redundancy— then maybe we weren't supposed to go outside. We were supposed to get a result showing disaster if we went outside, and that would have tipped us off without us going outside. If that's true, then my god is not a perfect predictor. They're not looking into the future. They're working off a fallible model. In that case, they wouldn't have been able to do exact timing, 
and that attack was set to go off the moment I went outside, not because my god predicted the timing that precisely. Similarly, when it comes to Zonkuthon, our two obvious hypotheses are, 1. Attack was building since yesterday, God warned us of it yesterday. 2. That spell was a warning of something else, I misinterpreted it as Zonkuthon, and somehow that triggered the attack by Zonkuthon, like by my thinking of him loudly enough that he heard it like a prayer, which does not seem particularly plausible to me, but I'm saying it out loud anyways, because Galarion, or, of course, somebody in governance heard him say it, and thought it would be a great thing to fake without the slightest use of subtlety. The light shows overhead. Could have been locally faked to look global. Maybe Ione can grab a newspaper from Ostenzo Library and see if it mentions... Well, that might work, if Ione is still Ione. So, how did they know the moment I went outside? I don't know. Security cast? Really cast, I'd have noticed if he did something weird. A bunch of standard detection spells at the edge of the forbiddance. There wasn't a scry up on the other side, or an alarm spell set to trip, or any magic at all, or anyone hidden and waiting. Could have been someone's bonded familiar, a ways off, with vision enhanced to see through invisibility. Or could be security was compromised, or Pilar, or me. Or you, I guess, if we're being thorough. Though even then, they'd have had to have activated a magic item or something to alert people, and the others ought to have noticed. Why was Pilar there? She isn't usually, when you test your spells, she wasn't when we did detect anxieties or detect desires. Pilar had been checked and had totally satisfactory anxieties and desires, but the plan had been not to have her mostly because there wasn't a good excuse to have her and not the other girls. Oh, and now that Carissa thinks about it, the reason Pilar was there was obviously some weird thing to do with her oracle powers, and she should not have completed that sentence aloud, though probably Keltham would himself have noticed the discrepancy at some point. Oh, that's amusing. So all of us got tagged by mind control at least once tonight, possibly including Pilar herself, possibly excluding security if he was the source, and it either went right through anti-enchantment or it wasn't enchantment, or it happened before I cast that blocker. I am trying to figure out if my successful prediction about the results I'd get from my poll, about people's surprising revelations if I date them, also implies things like it's not Carissa's headband because that's too obvious of a red herring. Or, it won't be Pilar, it will be one of the other girls. And you already have enough information to figure out who. But you're not actually going to figure it out before dating her because the information was too subtle. Ugh. I don't really understand what you mean. Carissa confesses after a little while spent internally panicking that that is an accusation of some kind, though it doesn't exactly sound like one. Of course not. You have to be really far into a relationship with a girl before they can hear you talking about the arrow larp itself. Actually, he should just check that. Can you repeat back what I just said using your own words, and then make some sort of inference about it which shows your brain is processing it? You said you're wondering if an implication of your successful prediction with the poll about people's surprising revelations is that the cause of the Kuthanites being able to track us is not my headband, because that's obvious misdirection, or if another implication is that one of the girls betrayed us, but you will have to date her to learn that. Uh, it sounds like you think 
Cheliax is lying to you. Some god or entity is, trying to communicate with you, but in a way that I don't think would work, with prophecy broken, and I don't know what you mean about my headband being misdirection. Whose misdirection? That which is above all gods. But if you can hear me talking about it, then that's some evidence against tropes being a thing here. Never mind. Mostly a stupid thought. And if it wasn't, then I almost certainly have to see it on my own. What would you say in real life is the chance you should swap out that shiny new headband that bypassed government security checks? I would have said very low and that Acquisitions was being way too paranoid, but I would also have said that about a Kuthanite attack and... and I wouldn't even have put a probability on a war among the gods. That's happened once in recorded history. So if you think I should, then I think I'll just concede you're better at thinking about this stuff and do that. It almost certainly wasn't the headband. That said, there's no reason not to swap it with a headband that has been in ordinary quiet use somewhere much less sensitive, which you personally selected to make sure nobody in our supply network or command structure slipped in an evil headband for what would actually be the first time. Never trust what you can verify. I'm reluctant to leave the forbiddance again right now, but I'll take one off one of the dead security and maybe swap again later once it's safer to leave. Can she just do that? And leave a receipt about the swap? Wait, do we feel comfortable around that giant sharp thing you're carrying in alien invasion rehearsal festivals? It is often very not safe to steal weapons off dead aliens. And for that matter, if somebody actually invaded civilization, I expect they'd have a bad day trying to swipe weapons off exception handling. Yes, I'll have to leave them a note. And they'll be annoyed, but see the logic. It's not like they wouldn't do the same thing if I were dead and there was cause. The sword's a plus three, vicious, cruel longsword. It doesn't have an innate personality or defenses against being stolen, and I already used it to kill its bearer. So if it were going to manifest any, it might have done so then. If it's got tracking, it'd be impressively subtle tracking, but I guess I shouldn't rule that out confidently. I was a weapons enchanter, by specialty, so I've looked at a lot of really fancy swords. What is a manufacturer doing at the site of combat? Never mind. Economic magic. What do we actually do now? When does the project restart? When do Asmodia and Pilar get back? Where do we sleep tonight? When Asmodia and Pilar get back depends on whether we're at war with Nadal. If we are, they're going to be using all our raised dead and resurrection capacity for the military for a while. I don't know how badly the villa is damaged, but I think it'll be in repairs for at least the next couple of weeks, and they might decide to relocate us to the Imperial Palace, which is the only other place in Cheliax with a forbiddance up, and which has security adequate for an invasion from anywhere I've heard of. We can ask for that now, if you'd rather be somewhere where something awful didn't just happen while you rest and recover. And that's what I think you should do next, is rest and recover. People often need a couple of weeks off after their first real battle at the Worldwound, and that's people born to our world with some dead siblings who've attended some public executions. She looked it up. They have those in Taldor, too, though they only make it really slow if the crime is treason or something. You're from farther, and you might need longer, and you're our most valuable resource. It'd be stupid to run you too hard. Ordinarily, I'd ask why you thought you knew the complete list of everywhere in Cheliax with a forbiddance, 
but I'll skip that since you think the complete list is the center of governance plus one single secret government project that started up a couple of days ago, and which you happen to work at. You know, I think that's the first time I've ever heard you say something that sounds adorably naive and trusting, compared to the mature cynicism of a wise young boy like myself. Giggle. Fair? It's a really, really expensive spell, but I guess, I don't know, there aren't half a dozen other secret places they can relocate us to, except that I think they might have done that rather than casting the forbiddance here, if any of them would have done. I think probably the decision will be made once the site director is no longer dead, unless you tell people you want to be somewhere safer right now, which you should do if you think it'll be good for you. I'll think about it while you immediately swap headbands before anyone listening has a chance to pull their own substitution ahead of you. Should have thought of that faster. Uh, right. She goes back over to the other room, heads over to the pile of bodies, and finds a plus-two headband because security would be furious at her if she swaps for a plus-four. Changes it out. There are people gathered around for a heal. Of course, they didn't interrupt her with Keltham, even though he told them to. She tells someone to knock on the door and ask for the heel in five minutes, and then goes back to Keltham. Doth Ilani shouldn't be weak enough to need two weeks of recovery time after their first experience with somebody trying to kill them, should they? Though they certainly have a very, very different attitude towards violence than Cheliak's. You learn the potential for defense in reality so that aggression stays confined to counterfactuals. Cheliak's has public executions, Dath Ilan has executions, too, in a certain sense. If you intentionally cause someone else's true death, you don't get kicked to the last resort. You get forcibly and preemptively cryo-suspended. Not as a deterrent, obviously, because ideal agents ignore those, and civilization doesn't build structures that would stop working if people became more ideal. Because anybody that dangerous is more danger than civilization wants to inflict on the non-true murderers in the last resort. Civilization has a motive to preemptively suspend people that dangerous, irrespective of its effect on incentives. It's not a threat. Obviously, if a chronicler or a family member asked to be present at the preemptive suspension, and the murderer didn't veto it, governance would hardly block them. You could probably do it as an ordinary concerned citizen, and it's hard to see governance stopping them without an overwhelmingly strong reason. Governance, which has way too much power to say no to things, has to be very circumspect about what it actually says no to if it doesn't want the annual oops it's time to overthrow the government festival to suddenly turn real. Keltham has a suspicion that Cheliax's public executions are not public, in the sense of open to sufficiently concerned citizens wanting to make sure everything has been done correctly. It rhymes with Carissa's earlier claim that the thing to do with rats is feed them to other rats in a frenzy of cannibalistic death and sell tickets. Public executions, Keltham suspects, have tickets. Though it's the sort of thing he should check later, maybe by asking Carissa what the equilibrium price of the tickets are, rather than if the tickets exist at all, if he's feeling paranoid that minute. It's not like it's not consistent. It would pass muster as fiction. Low-tech society with poorer coordination, sustained by economic magic, with healing, resurrections, and afterlives. Losing a finger isn't permanent until the distant future can restore it. There are clerics. Not true death means you come back. Well, you come back if you had enough money to buy insurance. 
Life in Galarian must be a pretty different experience for its relatively wealthy people and relatively poor ones. Like, qualitatively different. Two worlds with different tech levels. But everyone gets the afterlife, it sounds like. Unless they betray an oath. Or Nethys touches them. Or how common is that statue business? He should check with somebody else. Carissa doesn't seem like the type to fret about statistically improbable, awful fates. And, sure, you can imagine a society like that, where they don't give a shit about violence because the injuries aren't permanent, where they don't give a shit about death because resurrection and afterlives, a society where people getting near the end of their natural health span, when they're starting to feel sick enough and stupid enough that they're not having fun, would have violent fights to the death with one another, like that's a sporting event. Actually, maybe public executions wouldn't sell tickets. Those are probably much more boring compared to suicide sports. So why are executions public? He'll try to remember to ask later. You could tell a consistent story where a Dothilani boy would be a fragile little flower by comparison to all that, and he'd take a long time to recover from somebody almost sticking him with a sword and instead sticking that sword into a girl he met two days ago. Keltham doesn't like this story, and he's trying to decide if that's his real self-talking or just his gender trope. Well, his gender trope is him to no trivial degree. He's at 10.2 out of 12 on the gender trope identification scale. And it's not like zero optimization ever went into making the masculine gender trope be a useful target for males to try to live up to. But still. But it's more that Keltham has a sense that there's something false about Cheliax's rejection of the idea that violence could be harmful. That it rhymes with permanent cheerfulness and acting like sex still works normally. The pain is still real. The suffering is still real. Even if the injury and death are temporary and discarnation isn't the end. This is like the sort of weird equilibria exhibited as stuff that might happen if not for civilization and not for mental training. Hence why people have to go on playing strange games with children to let them be, not that. A proving things to people equilibrium, like a duke's crazy son being challenged to prove his courage by racing a rhinoceros. Where people try to show off really hard how much injury and death don't matter to them, and end up dumping Asmodia's body in a corner without any respect shown to it while her soul's not in it. If Dothilan had healing and resurrections, it would not be like that. He doesn't think the Kelthamverse would be like it either. Or maybe he's wrong. He hasn't lived in the Kelthamverse, plus healing, resurrection, and afterlives. But the fact that Chelish people still end up in shock for two weeks after their first fight with demons suggests that they're forcing their minds to be disdainful of violence's impact doesn't quite work, is possibly making things worse for them. I want to be safe, not feel safer is what Keltham says to Carissa when she gets back. I don't think the foreseeable difference in the psychological impact of a semi-familiar place where an attack happened versus a completely unfamiliar place somewhere else is great enough to count against a 0.1% difference in actual securability. And, maybe this doesn't apply in this case, but, in Dathilan, if a mental shock isn't mostly better in the morning, and hasn't reached a new equilibrium after three days, if it's not better in the morning, 
That would be the point at which you talk to somebody smarter or better disciplined about mental errors you might be making that would cause internal conflicts to get stuck and not resolve. I won't push myself if it turns out I can't recover that fast. Won't try to act outwardly normal if that's not true. But... It's the recovery time scale I would have guessed if you hadn't mentioned anything. Oh, and I register with my amateur security posturing that it seems to me that bringing Pilar back, or contacting her early in the afterlife, to see if she has any idea how or why she was put there, is a security issue higher than her ordinary resurrection priority. Yes, I should think that it is. I'll pass that along, and pass along that they should decide where to put us based on whatever's actually safest. What a convenient preference from Keltham. It'd be great if you're all right in a couple of days. Some people are, and you can definitely talk to a priest about it if you want. And some of the ways people aren't all right might be irrelevant to you. Like, people get flinchy in similar situations, and that's a big liability if you have to hang out on the same wall fighting demons, but much less of one if you never have to encounter a Kuthanite again. I have ever been through a trauma contingency class and am already forewarned against deciding to never talk to an Archon again or wanting to spend the rest of my life staying inside forbiddances. But positive reinforcement for double-checking. You know, another thing that's conventional wisdom at the World Wound is that after a big rush, all the survivors should get laid. Because it prevents trauma. No one really believes it prevents trauma, but it's a good excuse. Huh. Conventional wisdom in Dathilan would be wait for the next morning to not form weird associations. I suspect that, even for a tremendously resilient masculine male like myself, this is a next morning thing. As you like. She thinks the associations are the point, but that sounds like a losing argument. If they always follow violence with sex, that could like possibly be an important factor in understanding Chelish society. Still, he shouldn't rush to conclude that a previously unobserved social equilibrium can't have any useful functions for the people who equilibrated with it. I wouldn't stop you if... Wait, what? Brain probe. I apparently would want to stop you if you wanted to run off and have sex with somebody else instead, unless it was with somebody I already knew, and then I might have different opinions depending on my relationship to them. To be extremely super clear, I remember the explicit conversation we had yesterday about that exact topic, where it was explicitly said we were not committing to other stuff like that by deciding to have sex. Snuggle. But it'd be nice if it were your call who I had sex with— It'd be sexy. It feels right. And coincidentally, all of the other girls who marked down high scores on his romantic interestingness scale, plus one who hit herself and is the traitor, will all have equally impossible and unrealistically evolvable sexualities configured around the exact details of his unreasonable preferences. Keltham doesn't say anything about how convenient, because this is not, on that hypothesis, Carissa's own fault in any way, nor would she have the ability to explain it. Unless it's the other path to the same end, Chelish governance faking an elaborate Eero LARP around him. Or, on the less literary hypotheses of reality, maybe Dath Elon has no masochists because nobody ever tried following up severe non-simulated violence with sex. He wants to think it can't be that simple, because somebody in civilization really would have figured it out, and then figured out a less costly way to get the same result. But if it's some weird brain thing you can't guess from parts of the model pinned down by other observations, maybe they really wouldn't have figured it out. 
Or maybe nobody would volunteer for the wanting-to-be-hurt process, even if it didn't take the non-simulated violence, because, um... Oh, crap, Keltham says. That gets into serious sex stuff, which in turn reminds me. I wrote down a list of my pending questions that I managed not to ask you during sex. It was in my bedroom. I wonder if it survived the invasion. Or I wonder if security picked it up. I used a second layer of naughtiness spoiler cipher to write it, which is the highest level of spoiler I can read reflexively. Is Comprehend Languages going to go right through that? It's legit kind of personal. Comprehend Languages can't read ciphers. I could go and get... There's a knock on the door. Uh, someone says, ducking their head. We were told to get you for healing? On it. While he's doing that, Carissa will clean her dress and tell security about Pilar and about Keltham's instructions for where to put him and think at them some more details about the plan, which is approximately just to keep Keltham happy and wait for Mayol, who she assumes they'll have just after dawn and who she expects will be really angry with her, though she's not sure about what. And can someone go to Keltham's bedroom and possibly actually use shrink item to move his entire bed to the library and grab ciphered notes. Is this everyone? Keltham says when he sees the next version of the room. I may have two healing surges left. I doubt I have three. This is everyone. The room is fairly packed and nearly all male. Most but not all of the new arrivals are uniformed. Keltham background notices the gender disparity and background updates that pseudo-violent professions, well, actually violent in this case, may have the same gender trope association in Cheliacs as in civilization. This is too unsurprising to propagate much updateness elsewhere. Heal. More. Heal. And that's it for the day. Actually, why aren't they already saturated on fourth circle priests who would have teleported in and done this already? File it under things to maybe remember to ask later. Security is going to bring you your possessions from your bedroom. I suggested they also bring the bed. Since this is the only secured part of the villa right now, we can set it up in that back room. Where's everyone else sleeping? Not to amateur argue with security, but if I'm the only one sleeping here overnight, and everyone else is going back to Ostenso, that does seem like the point where it'd be cheaper to set me up in the palace instead of protecting the whole place just for me. To be clear, I'm not expressing a preference, just a puzzlement. I think everyone else is probably going to sleep on the library floor. I've never actually wanted to sleep in the same bed as other people, so I haven't found out if I actually can. But I will at the very least note that I would be okay sleeping in a smaller bed and letting others use my large one. Even if I pick tonight to be the moment when I find out whether I can fall asleep next to you. Which doesn't sound like a terrible thing to try at least once. That still only requires a significantly smaller bed. I don't know if the villa of the Archduke of Sirmium has any normal-sized beds, but I can suggest that they look. But also, we'll be fine. The girls were about to enlist, and there's a lot of sleeping on the ground on the trip up to the world wound. Keltham, a tired security man says from the doorway. Question mark. I'm so sorry, but your room appears to have been targeted as an early priority during the attack, with a lot of fireballs. We have some people casting mending now, but we don't expect your possessions to be salvageable. His head remains ducked. Something feels off about his presentation, to Carissa's mental model of Keltham, but she's not sure if it's a Cheliax versus Taldor off or a Galarian versus Dathalon off. Didn't have anything important in there except some non-vital notes. It's 
Not fun, though, to find out that he can't leave important stuff in his room because it might get destroyed, or that Nadal or Zon Kuthon directly was watching him closely enough to know where he sleeps. Wait. Belief inconsistency. If the attack was timed to the moment I tried to step outside, why were they specially targeting my bedroom? They wouldn't expect me to be there. He looks up at Keltham. That's a very good question. I have no idea. Would they have thought you'd left something important there? Something they'd have wanted to steal or destroy? For that matter, why fight their way through the villa at all if they knew he was on the perimeter of the grounds? Did it seem from security in the villa's perspective like most of the attackers were going for the villa? That was indicated in the first communications we got, but communications stopped pretty quickly. If they changed targets 20 seconds in, I wouldn't know. No survivors in the villa who didn't make it to the library, though. And apparently there were some survivors outdoors. Gesture at the two of them. Yeah, all right. That makes no sense to me at all. There's a saying out of Dath Ilan, backed by a law I might otherwise have been teaching tomorrow. Maybe still will if I'm in shape for it. Your strength in the law is your ability to be more confused by fiction than by reality. If you're equally good at explaining anything you could possibly see, you have zero knowledge because your degrees of surprise don't distinguish any possible event from any other possible event. I notice that we are confused, therefore something we believe is fiction. Could his god have timed it that exactly? Keltham's bedroom being full of fire is not happy news about what would have happened if his god hadn't done that. Carissa is pretty sure this guy isn't lying, but if he is, she is going to show him a lot of fireballs. She can only cast a few per day, but presumably someone will courteously leave him chained to something for as many days as it takes. What do we believe about what happened? That someone caused Pilar to be with us and our departure not to be the secret it was intended to be. That Nadal detected you leaving the Forbiddance and attacked. That, despite knowing where you were, they went through the villa and killed most of its defenders. That they fireballed your room. How many rooms are similarly destroyed? I haven't done a full inventory, but an explosion took out half the West Wing. That's how they entered. And the banquet hall and the four rooms adjacent to it are burned as thoroughly. Of course, if you were guessing which room an important guest was in, you'd probably guess Keltham's. It's the suite styled for House Throne when they're in Ostenso. I am not a domain expert on Galarian, but if I try to come at this from a Dathalani angle, we can probably premise more strongly than we can premise almost any other part of this that the timing between my stepping outside and the attack was not coincidental. It's to within, something like one in five hundred parts of the day, or less, for it to be a coincidence that tight is something we'd see once in five hundred times. We then have a classic probability, theoretic detective story, that of accounting for coincidence, in particular, a coincidence of timing. Suppose that, prophecy being broken, we don't believe that any god managed to time it in advance by sheer prediction. We furthermore believe Nadal didn't see me stepping outside because they didn't know where I'd be. Then some other element of the sequence of events that led to me being outside must have triggered the attack, or been timed with the attack. Furthermore, though more tentatively, at least one element in this sequence of events was chosen by an adversary of Nadal, because they plausibly would have gotten me inside my bedroom otherwise. 
This causal sequence started with my asking to cast my cleric spells. No, it started with Carissa returning from her shopping trip at the exact time she did. It ended when I summoned the Archon. But I doubt Carissa should be looking for anything that timed the end of her shopping trip, because she had dinner after that. And with prophecy broken, you won't get two-minute timing at the end of a causal sequence like that. Something in that causal sequence either triggered the attack, or was triggered by it. When did Ione get her vision? Maybe 18, maybe 24 seconds before the attack. Why not send her a vision earlier? Cheliax could have been better prepared. An obvious possibility is that the assault was not legible until the last minute, maybe because it was successfully obscured from whoever sent Ione the vision. But the assault was legible enough for my own god to send me a spell vision of Zon Kuthon's afterlife the previous day. If Nadal were otherwise planning an attack in an hour, say, but had eyes on Ione, but not me, they might have concluded they needed to attack as fast as possible after she gave her warning, in order to preserve as much surprise as they could. So Ione got the vision as soon as I was outside of the primary targeted zone inside the villa. I want to say that, if that's the case, whoever sent her the vision had a grim dark sense of humor, but it could have just been the best solution to an optimization problem. We could have handled it without casualties if we'd had five minutes of warning. Maybe Zon Kuthon's people had some way to know we'd been tipped off, and reacted to the security alert that went out immediately after the vision. I want to emphasize that this entire mode of thinking is almost definitely completely illegitimate. But since somebody just happened to mention to me this morning that gods get clearer vision when they have clerics around, is there any not incredibly expensive way to check for sure whether one of the other girls in the library with Ione was a first circle cleric of Zon Kuthan, who therefore looks just like a second-circle lawful evil wizard to Ara sight. It is sometimes said in Dathilan, if you put your reasoning into overdrive, you will often get somewhere, and the trouble is, you will often also get somewhere else. The screening involved asking them under a truth spell after other magic on them had been dispelled, about affiliations and commitments to other gods. There are a couple non-Asmodeans, but no one who was secretly Kuthanite. A couple non-Asmodeans is a little high, but not incredibly high, she adds to Keltham, as security's not allowed to proffer that obvious lie. The teen years are when kids experiment with religion and are likeliest to be followers of random gods. Probably a complete empty set search, but if we haven't figured out anything else, suppose you repeat that screen in case somebody got clericked shortly after she got here, double-check whoever does the second screening, and consider that, if something like that isn't impossible, she may not know her new god is Zon Kuthon, or may somehow not know she's a cleric. Zon Kuthon could just not give her any spells. Or she could have a hot-swappable personality, one self who's a cleric and one self who's not. I should say the same logic which suggests this whole bit also suggests that whatever test we come up with is not going to detect her. We can do that, he says, a bit skeptical, but mostly just very tired. And then another uniformed person, looking significantly sharper and ineffably more dangerous, steps in. Her Imperial Majesty invites the traveler Keltham and any companionship he desires to the palace in Igorian, while repairs are underway on his present residence. Oh, good. Something for Carissa to do, aside from quietly panicking about how Keltham is using a reasoning process that he thinks is above the gods? Beyond the gods? 
and which therefore she has no idea how to feed the wrong information and which is therefore going to ruin everything. The something to do is, of course, accept a personal invitation from Her Imperial Majesty to her home, but, you know, at least she understands where she stands with that. Governance at the legislature or chief executive level in Dath Ilan does not have literally zero formality. Keltham can recognize a cue to go into dealing with very serious people mode. He stands a little straighter. I accept at least for myself, and for a set of others to be determined momentarily, if you'll give me that moment. Carissa, who am I supposed to invite with me? Is that like you, the other researchers, the survivors of the villa, what? Is Her Imperial Majesty's generous invitation aimed at the relocation of the project, or is her intent better understood as that Keltham relax and recover in greater comfort and safety while preparations for the project to restart are underway? While I cannot speak for her, Keltham's comfort and safety are at this time the highest of our project-related priorities. Me and anyone else you'll want not for classes. Is Ionia not for classes? Definitely not in the Carissa sense yet. I accept on behalf of myself and Carissa Sivar. When and if Ioni recovers, she will be valuable for my learning, even if I am not teaching. Do you have possessions you'll need to gather? I do. I don't... For accompany her, he says to local security and to Keltham. With your permission, I intend to cast a series of spells that will dispel external magical influences on you, detect any enchantment of your possessions or person, and guard against future such. Carissa and local security head out. Understood. I currently have running a self-cast protective cleric spell on my person and an external share language that will expire shortly. I would have both of those preserved if there is zero or nearly perfectly zero risk to security thereby, but more so the protective spell, as it is less replaceable. Regardless of rulings there, I consent to your described security measures. Enchantment foil, he says. We, of course, cannot cast it on you at all without the aid of extraordinarily powerful magic, as it is a spell that can affect the caster only, I will avoid dispelling it. And he does magic, visibly intricate and high-powered to detect magic. Mostly divinations, but also some abjurations. Keltham won't remember he's a magic bearer until halfway through that, but once he does, he'll cast detect magic and watch. He also notes that Upper Cheliac security isn't claiming not to know what enchantment foil is, which matches an earlier hypothesis about it being a security-only spell that can be used to defeat security measures. Carissa returns with the products of her recent shopping trip in her shopping trip bag of holding, along with her notes and her presence from the Queen, just as this is wrapping up. Security finishes with Keltham and turns to cast the same set of spells on her and on the things in her bag of holding. Let's go, he says when he's finished and starts walking. Keltham follows. Oh, he does have a tiny bit of trauma associated with leaving the villa premises. What fun. The sky above is still doing the thing that gets giant aliens to say, those above all mortals now battle, in a deep, grumbly voice. It's pretty at night. It's terrifying. Asmodeus is going to win, but still. They reach the edge of the forbiddance, and the man takes their hands, and without preamble, teleports. <laughs> If you wish to support this AI reading and others like it, please visit patreon.com slash askwhocastsai. Any help is appreciated. And thank you to executive producer John Doe 7776059.